Welcome to an inspirational Sunday message from Found Church. We hope you will be challenged and encouraged while listening to this message. For more information, or if you'd like to contact us, please visit our church website, foundchurch.co.uk, or you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Father, for all that's happened in this service already, and I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll speak through me now, that people will be encouraged, they'll be inspired, they'll be challenged, and that people will leave differently knowing that they've heard directly from you today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) So last week, if you were here or watching online, that Michael began our new series last week, In the Upper Room with Jesus. I think In the Upper Room with Jesus. And we're going to be looking at Jesus' final hours and these final moments with his disciples eh, and how those moments and the things that he taught his disciples and the things he shared with his disciples, how that is also very much applicable to us today. And we're going to cover five incredible chapters from the book of John, from John chapter 13 right through to John chapter 17. And those five chapters, as Michael shared last week, are actually devoted to one 24-hour period and there's so much stuff in there. So we're going to go all the way back to the start again and read some of the verses again that Michael read last week, but we're going to expand that a little bit. So if you have a Bible handy, I want you to turn with me to John 13, and we're going to read through from verse 1 through to verse 17, and the verses will also be up on the screen. So John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped up around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who who was going to to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent me. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Amen. Amen. And so today I want to continue looking at the great truths contained within this incredible 24-hour period. And specifically today, I want to dive deep into verse 2 of chapter 13. And if you realize that we're on the second week and we're in the second verse, it could take us a long time to get through these five chapters. But John 13 at verse 2, and it just simply says there, the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, 
to betray Jesus. And I don't think in my, my lifetime I've had very many messages preached about Judas. But here we are today preaching about Judas. And in, in the list of the 12 disciples that you find in the Gospels, we find that there is two disciples that have the name Judas. One was called Judas, the son of James, and the other was Judas Iscariot. And that's who we're looking at today, Judas Iscariot. And he was the, the treasurer for the disciples, but he was also the betrayer of Jesus. And Judas, the son of James, was also called Thaddeus in the list that you find in the book of Mark. Can you imagine being that Judas, that Judas, the son of James? Can you imagine after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, wandering about the place and speaking to people? And you introduce yourselves and say, hey, my name's, my name's Judas, I'm one of Jesus' disciples. And then suddenly realizing, like, no, 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 I wasn't that Jesus, I was the other one. I was the other Judas. Can you imagine being that guy? I think if I was that guy, I would change my name to Thaddeus as well. I wouldn't stick with it. But sometimes, though, it's easy to dismiss Judas as a villain or a victim. But I'm struck by the fact that in many ways, he was just like me and just like you. Judas was a follower of Jesus and a preacher of the gospel, but there was this double-mindedness about him. In the end, he abandoned the faith that he once professed. But when I look at his life, and you look at Judas' life closely, I think there's four things that are easily overlooked in his story, four things that are relevant and helpful for you and I today. And the first thing that I noticed about Judas' life was the commitment that he made. See, Judas made a commitment to Jesus, and there's no reason but to think that he was sincere in his faith at that time. Like the rest of the disciples, he left everything behind to follow Jesus. And Judas was involved in ministry, and he was given remarkable spiritual gifts. And Luke tells us that Jesus called the 12 disciples together. That included Judas at that point. And in Luke chapter 9, verse, verse 1 to 2, it says, He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he set them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So Judas Iscariot was a gospel preacher. He was given the gift of healing, and he exercised authority over demons. And that just reminds me that, and it challenges me, that active involvement in ministry is always a good thing. And I would encourage you, if you're not involved actively in any sort of ministry, then that is a wonderful thing to get involved in ministry. And I would encourage it for everybody. But let me warn you, and it's, but it's not in itself a guarantee of your spiritual life or health. Let me remind you, don't get so, yourself so busy doing for Jesus that you neglect being with Jesus. Don't neglect being with Jesus. Secondly, I see the opportunity that Judas, Judas was given. Judas walked with Jesus for three years. He saw the greatest life ever lived up close and personal. And you can't have a better model of faith than Jesus or a better environment for forming faith that Jesus had and walking around with his Savior. He directly witnessed the miracles. <coughs> when, when Judas fed the 5,000, sorry, when Jesus fed the 5,000, Judas was right there. He took the bread and he distributed it along with the other disciples. When Ju Jesus, keep getting them mixed up, but when Jesus calmed the storm, Judas was right there. He was right there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. You can't have better evidence for faith than Ju Judas had in his life. Judas heard all of the teachings of Jesus also. He heard the Sermon on the Mount, so he knew that it was a narrow road that led to life, and he knew that it was a wide road 
led to destruction. I tried to say broad road in the first service, and I got oh, tongue-tied. That's a wide road. A wide road that leads to destruction. He heard all of this teaching. He heard the warnings that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees. So he knew that there's a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. He knew all of this stuff. He heard the parable of the prodigal son, so he knew God is ready to welcome back and forgive those who had wasted themselves in many sins. With Judas' own eyes, he saw the clearest evidence that he could see. With his own ears, he heard the finest teaching. And with his own feet, he followed the greatest example. And yet this man still betrayed Jesus. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 reminds us, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? See, I think there's something incomprehensible about a person who just suddenly abandons the faith that they once uh, professed. And it's, at times it's hard to understand how a young person raised by godly parents in the context of a healthy church taught the truth of Scripture from an early age can somehow give up on Jesus. It's hard to understand why that happens. But Judas' story contains an important lesson for us if, as leaders, as parents, and friends who somehow grieve over someone that they love and who seemingly abandoned their faith. See, when that happens to us, in our life we start to worry where did we go wrong? Where did I go wrong in that upbringing? What more could we have done? Did we fail in our teaching? Did we fail in our example? Should we have immersed our son or daughter or a friend in a different environment? And they're all valid questions, but we often beat ourselves up with those questions as we apply them to our life. But let me remind you that Judas had the best pastor. He had the best leader. He had the wisest influencer. He had the best friend that anyone could have ever asked for. He had all of these things, and he still failed. He still failed. He spent three years with Jesus, but let me tell you, his attitude stunk. See, the problem isn't the leadership of the, or even the church that you attend. It's not what podcast you listen to or how many times you read through your Bible. If your attitude doesn't change or if your character isn't being transformed, then we're always going to be the same. We're always going to be the same. And Judas teaches us that even the best example, the most compelling evidence, and the finest teaching sometimes is not enough. Yeah. And all of that is the, the ultimate environment for incubating faith. And that cannot, and in in, in of themselves, change the human heart at times. And you know, I realize that there's people in this room, people watching online, and that is your story. There's people in your family who have walked away from Jesus and you're longing for them to come back. And I just want to take a moment, if that's right, just to pray for those people that they'll come back home to Jesus. Father, I just thank you Father, I thank you that as we look at the life of Judas, we realize as we beat ourselves up about our family members, about people that we know who have walked away from you, Father, help us to realize that it's not our fault. There's nothing that we could have done more or better in those situations when we line ourselves up with the story of Judas. And so, Father, I pray for all of those prodigals known to us. I pray that one day they too will come back home, like that great story in your word of the prodigal son, and they will come back home to a great welcome by you. They will realize that they don't need to clean themselves up or change anything. They just need to turn their eyes and their heart back to you, and you will welcome them home. So, Father, give us all that we need to help encourage them to, to do that once again and return back to you, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. And then the third thing that I noticed about the life of Judas was the choice that he made. See, Satan made a re relentless assault on Judas' soul, just as he makes a re relentless assault on everyone who chooses 
to follow Jesus. And we can read about Satan's attacks on, on Judas in Luke 22, verses 3 to 4. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with, with them how he might betray Jesus. Or John 13, 27, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. See, in the, in the Bible's clear statements about Satan's activity have led some people to say things like, well, poor Judas, he didn't stand a chance. Satan entered, entered into him. What could he do about it? But this evaluation of his life overlooks the fact that it was Judas himself that opened the door yeah. to Satan. Yeah. See, Judas had been stealing the money uh, the collect, from the collective money bag. He'd been stealing the offering, if you like. And when he kept this sin secret, Satan entered into his life even more. He made a deal with the chief priests and they sat down at Jesus' table with, with known sins that he would refuse to confess and admit. And what did Satan do? Satan entered even further into his life. Let me tell you, unconfessed sin always, always opens the door to Satan's power in your life. Satan doesn't give, gain a foothold in the lives of people who are walking in the light with Jesus. He only gains access when we open the door. And as one theologian observes, he says this, it is the peculiar majesty of Jesus that he can conquer man without man's first approaching him. But Satan's frailty is proved by this, that he cannot approach a soul unless that soul has first turned to him. And if we're being honest, sometimes we get this the wrong way around, fearing that somehow Satan will somehow have this secret access to Christians while doubting at the same time that Jesus can do anything for a person unless they open the door. But the Bible, let me tell you, the Bible teaches it's precisely the opposite to that. We have to invite Satan in. And we do that with our unconfessed sin. When we try and keep things hidden and secret, they always come up, they always come out, we always get found out, and Satan always gets further and further into our life, every single time. And then the fourth thing I see about Judas's life was the outcome that he embraced. Judas went out into the darkness that he had chosen himself. See, when you get close to Jesus, one of two things will happen. Either you'll become wholly his, or you end up more alienated from him. Among those who hate Jesus the most, someone's professed to trust him in their life. His claims are so exclusive and his demands so pers pers persuasive that in the end you must either give yourself fully to Jesus completely or give up on him altogether. There's no in-between. You can't choose to follow Jesus on Monday and then, and then do something different on Tuesday and then follow Jesus again on Wednesday. That's not how it works. It's all or nothing. You're all in or you're not in. It's, that's how it is. Follow Jesus wholeheartedly. There's no middle ground. Only those who have never known him can re remain indifferent to him. For those that get close, the only outcomes are full devotion or eventual antagonism. And every day, each of us is heading in one direction or the other. See, in an age when many are abandoning the faith they once professed, the story of Judas warns us to guard our hearts. Why? Because we'll drift away if we don't. The story of Judas also equips us to reach out to those who might be close to walking away from, that, from the faith. See, Jude, Jesus calls us to be merciful to those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. And you can read about that in the book of Judas, uh, 20, verses 22 to 23. And finally, the story of Judas reminds us that nothing good can come from giving up on Jesus. Nothing. 
He is of supreme value, and following Him is worth any cost. So you can see there's a lot we can learn from Judas, a character we often dismiss. And the same traps that he fell into in his life are just as applicable to us today, and we should heed the lessons at our peril. But you know, there's something even more remarkable in this opening scene of Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. And this is, of course, the act of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And this included the washing of Judas' feet. And that just blows my mind. He would still wash Judas' feet. This act of foot washing by Jesus is something that we'll probably look at in more detail and in more depth at a future date. But let me just pass a few comments on this incredible act. See, many of us have pondered the significance of this surprising act by Jesus Not only is it demeaning to wash feet, but it was considered to be especially condescending by the Jews to do something like that. But Jesus really gets into the role of foot washing, even removing his outer garment and putting a towel around him. And that is the look of a slave of the day. The disciples were aghast and silence falls on that upper room as they watched Jesus wash their feet. That is, of course, until bold Peter Peter who often speaks without thinking. Peter who reminds me of me too often. He breaks the silence in order to voice his objection. But when Jesus is done, he brings home the point of the lesson in verses 14 through to 20. In essence, he has washed their feet as an example for them to follow. If their Lord and Master can serve them by stooping low to wash their feet, then surely they can serve one another in any way that is required. When we read this amazing story, though, we're often riveted on, on Jesus and Peter. Why? Because of Peter's strong reaction to it. But let's consider for just a moment that Jesus not only washed the feet of Peter, but he also washed the feet of Judas, the disciple who was about to betray the Son of God. See, later that night, Judas would lead the temple authorities to find Jesus, making it possible for them to arrest him secretly and to lead him away for his trial and his execution. <coughs> and as Jesus shares this Passover meal with his disciples and washes their feet, John has already reminded his readers that Judas is the elephant in the upper room. John says at the beginning of the passage that the devil had already seized Judas's heart to betray Jesus. We read that in verse 2, our verse. And also as Jesus is washing Peter's feet, he t- then tells Peter, you're all clean, but not every one of you is clean. And then John, and he's writing this gospel, looking back, and the, years later, looking back, he explains, for Jesus knew who was going to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. What was going through Judas's mind as the Lord knelt before his feet and rendered the service of a slave? Did Judas already know that Jesus knew that he was, what he was about to do? And I think that depends when you read the story on the order of the foot washing. John says in verse 6 that he came to Simon Peter after he had started washing their feet in verse 5. So did Jesus have the conversation with Peter before or after he had washed Judas' feet? Either way, it had to be a really awkward moment for Judas. When he heard Jesus say, you're all clean, but not every one of you, all that Judas could have been thinking in that moment was, he knows. He knows. He knows, and he's still washing my feet. I wonder if their eyes met and Judas had to look away. 
On the other hand, what was going through Jesus' mind as he bent over the dirty feet of Judas Iscariot and washed them with the water and wiped them with the towel? He was not only washing the feet of a man with a devilish heart who was about to become the biggest traitor in human history, he was washing the feet of one of the disciples whom he had chosen, whom he had taught, whom he had ministered to. He had spent three years training and teaching him. He had commissioned Judas and given him power to preach in his name and as he had done with the other disciples. As I said earlier, Judas was there when Jesus calmed the storm, when he fed the 5,000 and when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And still, despite all of that, Judas was about to set in motion the event that God was used to bring about the horrifying death of his son through crucifixion. A death that hours later, Jesus would beg the Father to avoid if he could if he could just avoid that sweating drops of blood and palpable sorrow in the garden. And let me tell you, Judas is on Jesus' mind when he prays in the garden that night. Jesus is praying specifically for his disciples. And Jesus says in that moment to the Father, in John 17, he says, While I was with them, I have kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has, has been lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture might be fulfilled So Jesus knew all along what Judas was doing. Yet John tells us in chapter 13, verse 1, that he loved his own disciples right to the end. And as his own included Judas Iscariot. In fact, Jesus dismisses Judas in verse 27 after announcing to the disciples that there's a traitor in their midst. He could have removed Judas from the Passover meal sooner. If he wanted to, he could have got rid of him at any point. But instead, Jesus waits until he had washed Judas' feet along with the other disciples as if to say to Judas, you're still one of mine and I still love you. I still love you. Jesus would go to the cross the next day and give his life not only for the eleven but also for Judas, his betrayer. And it's very hard for us today, I think, to imagine a love like that. So Jesus teaches the church, teaches you and me to wash one another's feet that is to sacrificially serve others, even in ways that we might think is beneath us. But as ultimate foot washing act, we go to the cross for the whole world. But this lesson is not only about our willingness to do a dirty task. It's also a lesson about our willingness to love other people, even those who are unlovely or unloving in return. After all, if Jesus can wash the feet of those who were scattered from him, of of the one who would deny him three times, and even the one who would betray him. If Jesus can do all of that, if he can wash your feet and my feet, then surely we can wash one another's feet. Do you know, a few years back, one of my colleagues when I worked in CVM eh, wrote these words in a blog post a few years back, and this is his words. He says, Nothing makes me more unsure whether I'll persevere until the end like spending too long in his presence. Months had gone by, interactions multiplied and good intentions were no longer strong enough to sustain my friend. This particular gentleman was the type to complain incessantly, listen sparingly, intermingle belligerently, receive presumptuously, smile seldomly and gossip freely even when food still lingered half eaten in his mouth. He was a cyclist, not because he enjoyed the exercise, but he pedaled leisurely down the middle of the road prodded along by the honking horns. Why? Because he took great delight in their displeasure. He was a type to stick gum under the tables. My friend tried in vain 
to enjoy his company. But year after year, he still wondered piously in the words of Jesus in Mark 9.19, how long shall I put up with you? He lamented that his love was so small as to only cover a handful of faults in this guy's life. My friend didn't want to admit it, but he felt unchristian, acknowledging it, and he knew that God had placed this man in his life, but he didn't like him. My friend would even tell us that he preferred wearing wet socks and hanging about with this guy. He wondered how he could obey God's call to love this man. He could no longer stand to be around. And it's unmistakable that Jesus calls his own to love, that, love those that we don't like within the church and out with the church. The love he taught us is not grounded on natural affinities or common interests. We do not stare at our neighbors trying to make out something lovable in them before we act. All it takes is for us to summon our care towards anyone on the planet is Jesus' simple command in Luke 10, 27. Love your neighbor as yourself. We do not get to choose who moves in next door to us, nor do we get to choose who lies bleeding on the opposite side of the road as we see in the story of the Good Samaritan. God's expectation for love is that we may extend it to those that we wouldn't naturally love And Jesus goes even so far to call us to love those we have the most cause to dislike our enemies. Let me tell you, we have no trouble loving people that that love us back. We love to invite over the funny, the wealthy, the attractive. God calls his people to love those who are hard to like. But like my friend, we ask the genuine question, how, how am I supposed to do it? How am I going to be sustained to keep doing that? But Jesus and Paul both let us in on the secret. Paul imparts the divine recipe that the Colossians had discovered. In his letter there to the Colossians, in Colossians 1, verses 3 to 5, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard and the true message of the gospel. See, the Colossians loved all God's people, not because they were all easy to love. And later in Colossians, in verse 13 in chapter 3, Paul would call the same Colossian people to continue to bear with one another and forgive each other. See, Paul did not live in the clouds. He was grounded in reality. He knew that you have to bear with some people and you have to forgive many others. But notice, though, they didn't wait for the others to clean up their act to somehow become worthy of their love or do kind deeds that made loving them easy. No, their motivation was absolutely untouchable. They loved because of the hope that was laid up for them in heaven. (coughs) And Jesus also taught this way. Jesus was expanding our call to love beyond the realms of the faithful. And let me tell you, Jesus always practiced what he preached. Notice the indispensable truth motivating Jesus to stoop down to serve those who, within hours, would collectively betray, abandon, and disown him. It's not all about Judas. The disciples fled. Peter disowned them. Judas betrayed them. Jesus did not get up, though, and start doing it out of his own willpower. The text says that he knew something. He considered something. He held a truth in mind that braced his back to kneel down and wash his disciples' feet. His hope in the everlasting tomorrow overwhelmed him 
with resources to love today. Jesus did not merely preach this way or serve this way. He died this way for you and for me also. He did not look at us and choose the cross because, oh, we're all so attractive. He did not squint to find a strain of loveliness to move towards the cross for you and me. He left heaven and came to die a shameful, bloody, brutal death, bearing the almighty weight of punishment for our sin, who we were most unlovable. And Michael mentioned that in communion at Romans 5 and 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His hands were pierced by our unloveliness, by his love, remained unscarred. Sorry, but his love remained unscarred. And what did Jesus do? Father, forgive them, was his cry. Father, forgive them. And Isaiah foretold what was coming to pass. Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, amidst his soul quenching anguish, he would see something to satisfy him and to sustain his love until the end. But what did he see? Love, love himself, Jesus himself, looked beyond the whips, the nails, the cross. He heard something other than the taunts, the laughter, the cries of crucify him. He saw more than just betrayal, dereliction, wrath. He saw the eternal bliss of his father's smile and the eternal destiny of his people propped up against the backside of the cross. And for the joy, the reward, the prize that lay before him, he took up his cross from Hebrews 12, despised its shame and conquered death for his own. He saw beyond the unlikable. Why? To make them his beloved. The unlikable, you and me, to make us his beloved. And as the band comes and we wrap this up, see, our love for others, our love also looks past our neighbor and it looks to the promises of heaven. And having our hearts warm there looks upon them afresh with a resoluteness to care. We do not love past them or around them or above them. We love them despite their annoyances, despite the oddities, the shortcomings, despite the ungratefulness we might find. We repay them with love. Not because they've earned it, but because we hadn't earned it either. And yet, we are inheritors of the world. Given kindness, sacrifice and consideration to those who cannot or will not repay us, it never ever bankrupts us. Our reward is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for us in heaven. With the pockets of our minds filled with heavenly gold and chests brimming with imperishable treasures, we are wealthy enough to spend time with the irritating, the exasperating, the mostly tiresome, the vexing. Knowing that we are born of God and going back to Him, we can rise up, we can wrap a towel around our waists and we can bend low to serve others that we might find impossible to love. Let me tell you, church, I've never been so challenged so much in my life as I have been in the weeks I've been preparing this message. To love those people. The people that walk into the room and say black every time you say white. Those extra grace required people that you have to have just to have a conversation with them. Those people who have hurt you beyond measure that you think, how can I ever, ever even speak to that person again? But Jesus tells us to wash their feet. I've been so challenged. So challenged. And I want to extend that challenge to you. To all of us as a church collectively. Like, it's hard stuff, but it's true. It's God's truth for us. And it's, it's, it'd be easy to skip over this stuff and preach a nice message, a feel-good message, but, but 
We need to preach the whole of the gospel. We need to challenge ourselves sometimes. Jesus died for you when you were at your worst so you could gain and inherit the world. If he could do that for you, how much of a challenge is that for us to go and serve those people in our communities, in our neighbours, our workplaces, those people that we avoid, the people that we go up a different aisle in the supermarket so make sure we don't speak to them. We've all been there. We've all been there. The people we cross the road so we don't have to speak to them. Jesus tells us to wash their feet. To wash their feet. I'm challenged. I hope you're challenged too. And I want to pray for us that we can rise up as a church to that challenge. It's not easy. It's not easy. But I believe we can do it together. We can support and encourage one another together. And I'm believing, trusting that as we show that different kind of love to people, that God's kingdom can only expand as people realize that we are loving them. Why? Because God loved them even more. God loves you even more. He was willing to die for you. But the first thing I want to do is I want to pray for you. If you've never ever received that love from Jesus in your life, regardless of your past, your faults, your feelings, the horrible stuff you've done, trust me, be struggling to get harder than stuff I'd done when I was young, before I gave my life to Jesus. And I love that it's Paul writes, Paul writes that he will remember your sins no more. Done. Dealt with. And I want, I want to give you that opportunity today to meet Jesus. You can experience that love in your life today. And as you experience that love in your life, you can then take that position of a servant like Jesus because you know the reward is in heaven. And you can love your enemies. You can serve those people who are unloving, who you think don't deserve it. With every head bowed and every eye closed in this room, if you've never ever given your life to Jesus, I would love to be able to pray for you today. I'd love to pray that you would meet Jesus today, that he would forgive you of all your sins, that he would restore you back into that relationship with him. And this would be the start of an amazing journey with him. And if that's you today in this room, I just want to encourage you to pop your hand up. Nobody is watching. Nobody's looking, just me. I'll pray for you. If you're watching online, you can scan that QR code and let us know. And I would love to be able to pray for you to meet Jesus today. I'm not going to embarrass anybody. I'm just going to help you. If that's you, say, Stephen, pray for me. Father, I just thank you today for that amazing challenge that you've set before us. Father, a challenge that even for me, as I was preparing this message, I just found it so difficult. And I thought about the people in my life who, who I would avoid or I would think that they don't deserve my love. And Father, I just thank you that you're challenging us with your truth today. And Father, I pray for all of us in this room watching online. Father, there'll be people in our own lives that you know and you're calling us to go and serve, calling us to forgive, calling us to, to be restored to. And, and Father, I just pray that as we think about those people in our lives, that you will help us to stoop down. You'll help us to put that towel around our waists. You'll help us to go and serve our communities, even the people that the media shuns and, and, and people look past. Father, I pray that we will not turn a blind eye to them, that we will come and serve them with your love. And Jesus, I just pray that you will help us in that and we'll look not just to the, to, to the temporary that's here, but we'll look to the reward in heaven that is to come as we serve you, as we be your hands and feet. And so Jesus, I pray today that you will help all of us, you will empower all of us today to go and do what you have commanded us to do, to go and help and serve one another in love 
And so, Father, I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been challenged and inspired. Please feel free to contact us through our website, foundchurch.co.uk, or you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.